I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Hillary Clinton is a bigot. These are racist ideas, race-baiting ideas, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, anti-women. Hillary Clinton and her campaign of 2008 started the birther controversy. I finished it. When you're running for president, I think you have an obligation to be healthy. <laughs> Every time I think about Trump, I get allergic. I have a winning temperament. I know how to win. She does not have Secretary to win. Wait. Secretary Clinton. Woo, okay. From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. The single biggest revelation of the presidential campaign started right here, in this dingy little halfway forgotten, but now infamous mailroom on the third floor of The New York Times. There it is, Craig, Suzanne. Sue, tell me what happened here. So I was coming around the corner. I was on deadline. And I just was heading this way, and I always look at my mail to see what was there, and I saw an envelope, and it had um, an address from the Trump Tower on it. And I just sort of looked at it. I was like, wonder what this is. I'd just written a story on them, so I didn't know if it was a complaint letter, a fan letter, who knew what it was. And I opened it. I was on the phone, and I pulled out three pieces of paper that were folded over once, and it looked like a 1995 tax return from Donald Trump and Marla Maples. They filed jointly that year. I, I, I honestly thought it was a hoax because I just, who, who mails you Donald Trump's tax returns? So, um, but I obviously was looking at it and they looked pretty real as well. So that sort of launched the last 10 days of craziness at the times in terms of trying to either verify them or prove that they weren't, they weren't true, that it wasn't true. Of course, they were true. And the story of Donald Trump's 1995 tax return was an immediate and bona fide bombshell. $916 million in losses. And finally, a compelling, highly plausible explanation for why Trump has refused to release his taxes. So, how do we get from that mailroom to this moment? Through a story of good old-fashioned shoe-leather journalism. Sue Craig took the document straight across the floor to the desk of three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter David Barstow. The result is what you read on Saturday. David and Sue are here with me in the studio to tell their story and explain where this might all be headed. Maybe because we're also just kind of naturally skeptical of things. Yeah. <laughs> Our first thought is, okay, what's wrong? What, what, no you know, way. This, this can't be the real thing. And obviously when we looked at the numbers and saw this... $916 million loss. I remember we, um, we were looking at it and we were like, first of all, it looked like the, the digits didn't quite add up and the negative thing didn't match the rest of them. And we were like, what happened here and what is this? And we started to look at what exactly this negative number was. And so the we, doubts, had, we were very skeptical. The doubts sound almost overwhelming at some, some early stage. Well, we, uh, yes and no, right? I mean, so uh, when you look at documents constantly, um, Often there's a kind of a gut feeling that you have pretty immediately about whether something looks like it might be real or, or not. Maybe it's like people who are experts at detecting art forgeries and they can, they, they can just take a quick look and instantly there's something before they can even verbalize it. They'll have a sense of whether it's a, a fake Rembrandt um, or not. And I think actually that 
two of us, even though there were reasons to be skeptical, also had this countervailing instinct that, wait a minute, there's something about these that kind of yeah, we, has a ring. We both had that feeling, it. and I think we were like, we knew we had to verify them, so it was almost irrelevant what we thought, but we both had a gut about this, but then we were also, we knew we had to verify them, and we were super skeptical at the same time. It yeah. was a weird range of emotions so that the, we had. So to bring it back, David, to your brilliant art analogy, the, the breath strokes that seemed slightly off were these two digits in the $916 million figure, right? They were just like, they were slightly this, adrift. There was a recurring anomaly on one of the pages involving these exceptionally large numbers. Um, if it was a nine-figure number, it looked like the first two digits were in a slightly different font and slightly misaligned with yeah. the remaining seven digits. Now, the obvious sort of conclusion you can jump to in that is that, oh, these are faked and someone just typed in um, the first two numbers. So we and there was also a two where it looked like somebody had actually done <laughs> yeah, it with a typewriter a and hit it twice. It was darker than the rest right. of the numbers. I mean, this is, I'm sorry, this is all kind of sounds ridiculous, but it's, we were just Not obsessing over these it's documents <laughs> and trying to figure out everything we could possibly. Did you use a microscope? I have a vision of someone taking <laughs> I, out. I have a magnifying glass on my desk. Of course you do. And mm. um, spent a lot of time with that, um, looking at it again. And there was one point where there was even of the line, there was a little, little piece of one line missing. You know how you have to, the lines to put in the numbers in between. And we were like, is that because of the photocopy? Is but, somebody liquid and, papered and it? One of our colleagues, <laughs> Megan Tui, has the, like the sharpest oh. eyes, and she she recognized that there was this really subtle difference in the swoop of the nine. In the um, serif of it. Literally in the serif of the nine. And she this, called there was no commas on yes, the Connecticut correct. tax return. Yes. So, um, so, that helped. <laughs> so anyway, so we're sort of stacking up all the things that are unusual and weird and funky about these um, documents. We're also doing a couple other things where um, you know, we obviously realized we needed to bring in tax experts to help us take a look at these documents. This, we're not CPAs. Um, this isn't what we do for a living. We need people who really swim in this ocean to look at these documents to see if there's just something kind of inherently contradictory, perhaps, about the way the numbers are um, presented or something and also what he would be disclosing, like what yep. was the forty three thousand yep. online, you know, right. eighteen or twenty four? Like what did that mean? What was the the interesting income? How could he have earned that? Like we just wanted to see if these numbers even made sense from a tax point of view that somebody could be disclosing that number. And on I don't want to dwell on this, but it struck me when I was reading the story that you guys made a decision to hire and pay outside experts. I've worked on stories mm -hmm. in the past where we did bring in a tax expert, but usually it was kind of like. Could you please do this on the weekend while you're volunteering? And did you have much of a debate about that? I insisted on it. Um, I thought it was really important that we hire people for a couple of reasons. One, we were going to be asking them to give us a significant amount of time, um, and so it's only fair to compensate them. The other is more pragmatic, which is we knew that these were incredibly sensitive documents, and we want to make sure that if we've hired someone, then it's a little safer to kind of bring them into the circle of trust. Um, and feel like you know they won't go running home and tell their neighbor or their. Right. I assume know. they signed non-disclosure agreements. I had I drafted one on my way to meet one very late one night. Because um, you're a lawyer. Just to you know, it was three three sentences, but I just wanted to. I'm impressed. I wanted to convey to the individual the the gravity of it and that he shouldn't share the information. I didn't think he would, but I felt we felt if there was a, a you know a, a letter signed and an agreement. Amazing that it could just it would just further our bond with them in a way because they were looking at Donald Trump's tax returns. So ultimately, 
David, the breakthrough comes as all great breakthroughs do in Florida. And (laughs) you travel there. The state that keeps on giving. Year after year. So you discover that the person whose name is on this document is an accountant. He lives, and he lives in Florida. And how did you even begin to approach him? Well, you know, obviously the clearest path to kind of authenticating these documents would be to bring them to the person who prepared them. And so the fortunate thing is that we, we one of the documents listed uh, Jack Mitnick, uh, who was Donald Trump's longtime tax accountant, as being the preparer um, of his 1995 uh, tax returns. So this isn't something you obviously want to try to do via Skype or, or by phone or something like that. You need to like go down and try to you know, have a really long searching conversation with the documents in front of you. And so that's exactly what we uh, what we did. And he was kind enough to agree to meet with me um, after some back and forth. Uh, How much back and forth? <laughs> like, you know, it was nothing is ever easy um, in life. And uh, this was there were some complications, but we ultimately got through those complications and ended up at a, a kind of a bagel place. Again, and this is Florida. This is Florida. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I think Mr. Mitnick, obviously, given his background as both a CPA and as a lawyer, um, was uh, extremely aware of the limits on him, even as a, a semi-retired, 80 years old, on what he could or couldn't say. And so he, he obviously had a, a ethical obligation to Mr. Trump, even though he is no longer representing him. Um, not to go blabbing about his uh, finances. But what he could do and, and agreed to do in this case was to look at the documents carefully for us and see whether or not they were legit or whether they were fakes. So, you know, I presented them kind of one page at a time. You know, I showed him the one with his signature on it. He immediately recognized, yep, that's my signature. And he also just had this basic recognition like, yes, these are the 1995 uh, tax returns. I started asking him a number of very detailed questions um, about things that had struck us as slightly odd about um, these uh, tax documents. So like on one one of the pages, there were like some stray zeros and we didn't understand why those had shown up. We didn't understand why Mr. Trump had only declared one dependent that year when he had children by his first wife um, that weren't included. There was a number of sort of questions like that. He was able to, you know, in terms of addressing those, it was giving me more and more confidence that, yes, these were real. But the aha moment for me (laughs) came when I showed him the page with those funny digits um, on them. And I said to him, Mr. Mitnick, this is the thing that gives us the most pause about these documents and makes us really worried that maybe somebody has doctored perhaps even the originals. What do you make of this? And he just immediately he kind of smiled and laughed a little bit. He was like, "Oh yes, I you know I remember exactly what happened. Um, the tax software that I was using at that time had trouble printing out a number that big, <laughs> um, and we we kept I wish trying we all to, had that problem. to 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 print that out, and it and it would only print out the seven digits, but not the nine digits. And so what I did is I 
took the return and ran it through my IBM, and I added in the the nine one, and that's why the numbers are a little bit off, and it's why the font is a little bit different. And it's kind of one of those moments when you're doing this, when someone just kind of immediately sort of has that um, that gives you a huge amount of comfort that okay, now we really do have much more confidence in the legitimacy and the authenticity of these of these documents. It was a really how long how long mind blowing moment. Yeah. How long could you constrain <laughs> yourself from from texting Sue and telling her the news? Um, I of course wanted to tell everybody right away, but you know that's you have to sort of. We weren't. I wasn't done <laughs> at that point, so we obviously continued having a lot more conversation. So, Sue, when you and David realize that you've got the man who drafted the document telling you it's authentic, is that it? Is that the moment you know this is real and maybe even publishable? I think we still went through a lot of steps in the next few days. We still wanted to make a lot of calls. We still had questions. Um, we obviously had to reach out to Donald Trump and the Trump campaign. So there was still a lot of reporting to do. I think David and I are very cautious people. And even in the face of uh, the accountant on the record saying, this is it, we still felt we had hours and hours. And you know, we, we worked nonstop from that moment until Saturday night to continue to make phone calls to various sources, people who may have, other people who may have touched the documents just to get further confirmation. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you, you know, you're always trying to think through what is it that I don't know? What's the trapdoor that I haven't seen? I think we almost went one, like that day, we were glad to get obviously the confirmation. And I think we almost went two steps back the next day because we were just stress testing it so much. Um, there'd been a lot of people and I think everybody went through a, okay, this is it, to well, what about this number on this page and this doesn't add up. And we, on Thursday after we got the confirmation, that's when we really went hard at the experts that we had hired and we had further questions and we couldn't explain a certain line on the tax return and how it could have been this size. So we continued, I mean, right up until Saturday night at deadline to stress test every aspect of it. I want to talk about what these documents actually tell us. They're incredibly complicated and you'd spend all these time with them. But in the, in the simplest possible terms, what did we learn from these three pages? Well, the first thing we learned is that Donald Trump and his personal income taxes in 1995 declared a loss of $916 million. So that's the kind of the first and most important thing is this man who is running as a successful businessman, that's his calling card, in 1995 declared almost a billion dollar loss on his personal income tax return. So that's news, clearly. Connected to that is the document shows, or these documents show the extent to which the tax code really actually helped kind of come to Donald Trump's rescue at a moment in which he had come very close to financial ruin in the early 90s through some a series of setbacks involving his Atlantic City casinos, this airline that he ran for a while. Corporate. In fact, corporate bankruptcies with his casinos. Yeah. Yeah. And the other kind of critical point was that because of this $916 million loss and because of these really beneficial provisions of the tax code um, that especially benefit people like Donald Trump, what this meant, the implication of this, is that it would allow him to avoid paying any federal income taxes for up to 18 years. And here's how. When you declare a loss 
of $916 million. Um, because of the way the tax code is structured for people like Mr. Trump, the next $916 million of income, taxable income that he earned, would be canceled out by this equivalent loss. So those are sort of the, I think, were the three big takeaways um, yeah. that that even though we're only looking at three pages, and you know, again, I'm sure that his actual full complete set of tax returns from 1995 are hundreds of pages. So we're only seeing a very tiny portion, but even that tiny portion, we could tell an awful lot of really important new information from. Were those losses accumulated in a single year or do they represent years and years of losses? It seems a little confusing to me. We don't know yet whether it represents multiple years of losses or whether it But it could have been. But it yeah. could have been yeah. multiple years of losses. And it would make sense given what was going on in his life in the early 90s, that it would reflect multiple years of losses. So he had a lot of the, the bankruptcies from the casinos that he had in the early 1990s and the losses even before the bankruptcy. All of these business losses would have been disclosed on the tax returns at the time, and then he could carry them forward and continue to for 15 years, given the laws at the time. To listen to Rudolph Giuliani and Chris Christie, this makes him a really smart business person. And and I, I wonder... I know this is this is an opinion-free news zone, but there there is some interesting and intriguing argument to be made that maybe he is smart for using this. I think this is actually the argument that Mr. Trump himself has really been introducing even before our story ran, in the week before our story ran. He began introducing this idea, this concept that if I avoid paying taxes, it doesn't make me a deadbeat. It doesn't make me a criminal. It means that I'm smart. He actually said something like that at the debate on Monday night with Mrs. Clinton. He also followed up uh, middle of the week last week when he was on the O'Reilly Factor. And he was asked again about this question of, of not paying federal income taxes. And he, the argument that he made, and it was an argument that his surrogates echoed on Sunday, is that American voters are actually looking for someone – like him, who's smart enough and clever enough to figure out how to game the tax code and avoid paying taxes. Like, that's the kind of thinking that American voters are looking for. So I think actually Governor Christie on Sunday said and made the argument that he thought that this story, our story on Sunday, was actually a very, very good story for Mr. Trump. And so I think there is a kind of um, at least there's an internal consistency and logic to the the kinds of comments that both Mr. Trump and his surrogates have been making. Obviously, there's a counter argument um, to that, but I but I do think clearly that's the argument well, that they're making. And I think the other part that's interesting in calling him a genius because he could use the tax code and he knew how and he had smart accountants was is that he also was the head of several companies that had losses that accumulated this amount of money. So I think that that's the other side of it, that it would call into question his business acumen in that sense. I mean, that's a lot of lot of red ink flowing onto that tax return. Right. And the employees and the stockholders and everyone else and the banks who and must hold the bag yeah. for those losses. Everything you guys have reported on that is in these documents and that he may have done with his tax losses to avoid future payments, is it legal? The tax ex experts that we consulted said that just based on what we know today 
from the documents that are available to us. There's nothing that indicates any kind of illegality at all. But it's also very difficult to ultimately answer that question without actually seeing the complete tax return and seeing a bunch of other information as well. Yeah, we just have such a limited view into it. How common is the practice of using your net operating loss to forego or avoid taxes among the very rich, if you know? I think it's an incredibly common practice. I think a lot of people have operating losses from various businesses and use them to offset their taxable income going forward. The interesting thing is when you start to talk to people about this, everybody who has a certain of money is like, oh yeah, my NOL. Like It's like an acronym that people sort of they, they just know say, oh, yeah, my, oh, oh yeah, yeah, the NOL yeah, carry yeah. forward. So how is it we're going to get to the bottom of whether or not he did or didn't pay the taxes we're talking about after that 1995 tax return? I mean, A, either he releases all of his tax returns or B, we continue digging and Sue gets more envelopes in her mailbox. For anybody listening, our address is 628th Avenue, New York, New York, 10018. Great plug. The conclusion you draw in your reporting is that the 95 tax return tells us how long he could have avoided paying taxes. Were there other conclusions that you might have drawn or did draw? Why did we emphasize this one? Well, first of all, we didn't draw a conclusion one way or the other. It's important to say right away to readers what this means is that he could have avoided paying taxes for up to 18 years. What I think is true is that it's pretty rare for a New York Times story to use that phrase, could have, in the lead. And people have wondered about our use of that. And we didn't pick it lightly. And we thought hard about it because there is a potential. There are other potential things that could have happened. So for example, let's say in 1996, the following year, he could have earned $2 billion somewhere along the line, and then he would owe you know, taxes on the, the extra billion um, beyond the, the $916 million loss. Here's why we didn't go that path. We've been studying his finances for months. We've been studying everything we can learn about what he was making, the various things that he was involved in at the time. And we see uh, no reason at all to think that he made $2 billion in 1996. To the contrary, what it looks like to us is that he was making maybe in the tens of millions um, uh, at that time at most. Uh, in fact, the 1995 return that we did publish showed roughly in the range of 10 to 15 million in income. In this case, a $916 million loss equates to him being able to write off tax-free up to $50 million a year in taxable income. Based on everything that we know about his finances at the time, it seems to us pretty unlikely that he ever got anywhere near even $50 million in one year. I do think we should touch on the legal elements of all this. I wonder how much of a debate there was and how, how privy to it you both were on the legality of publishing someone's tax returns, given that the law makes pretty clear that this stuff is meant to remain confidential. That actually was the least difficult part of this process for us, and I'll tell you why. There is a ton of law um, that's built up over the years 
focused around the First Amendment and the rights of newspapers and publishers to publish information even when there's a law that says it's private or should not be published. And in this case, what would be problematic would be if we went into the IRS and stole records. That would be problematic. If we paid someone at the IRS and induced them to steal that records, would that would be highly we, we problematic. We lawfully obtain these by checking our mail. Correct. And once, you, once you've done that, even if there's a law someplace that says we can't publish these without Donald Trump's permission, there's something else. It's called the First Amendment. And the First Amendment, the Supreme Court and other courts have ruled over and over and over again, gives newspapers the right to publish information if it's considered that it's in the public interest even if there might be some other provision that says we can't do that. Um, and in this case, I know f from talking to the editors who were involved in this, none of us had a shred of doubt that these documents were completely in the public interest. And I think especially so because there's this tradition that stretches back, what, four the decades? In the early 70s to release presidential, presidential uh, uh, candidates releasing their tax returns. So I actually think... The, um, we never really you know, had like it wasn't the our David and I our focus was you know all about the reporting and it wasn't even like a, a a big issue and we were obviously aware of the Trump campaign's legal concerns that were expressed to us but David and I were just that wasn't I lost zero sleep over no, that no we um, um we legally obtained them yeah. and I and I and I believe that our lawyer lost zero, zero sleep, sleep over it um, as well <laughs> so Sue it's it's hard not to imagine what the anonymous source who sent you this information's reaction was the morning that this comes out in the paper. And I wonder if you've given any thought to the emotions that, is, that are running through him or her. We've given it a lot of thought since the minute that they arrived. And one of the first reactions I had, even as we weren't sure if they were real or not, was how many other reporters, both at the New York Times and at other news publications, were sent this. You know, could I have been the only one? So we started and I went through um, several times all the mail in the building that was delivered to any reporter we went through. We had a group of people. We went through every mailbox on each floor. We didn't find anything. And then at the same time, you're just wondering what this person was thinking. If we could verify them, I was just imagining the person hitting refresh on the website every 10 minutes just to see how far, you know, if we could verify them and what conclusions we would come to. David, um, you've been an investigative reporter, having won many Pulitzer Prizes doing this for a long, long time. In the one time that I worked with an anonymous source who sent me an anonymous document, interestingly enough, that person wanted to make themselves known to me at some point and did let himself be known. And I just wonder if that's even something people in your business care about or if you'd almost rather not know. You know, it's funny. People often, when there are conversations about whistleblowers, the conversation's often framed around did they have noble intentions or did they have some, you know, is this score settling or some, some less than noble motive? I, from the years of doing this, I've found that sometimes whistleblowers with terrible motives uh, come forward with incredible documents. And I've also had times when whistleblowers with just the most perfect, pristine motives come forward and the documents are worthless. What really matters to me is... Is this information real? And if so, is it newsworthy? 
one of the most important whistleblowers in American history is a man named Merrill Williams. He worked for the tobacco industry. The first time I met him many years ago, his first words to me I remember were, you know I'm a born liar. This is a man with multiple marriages, bankruptcy, he was a drunk, he was this. But what he was also was he was a paralegal at Brown and Williamson. And his job was to go through tobacco industry documents and filter out documents that might be handed over in litigation that would get the tobacco industry in trouble. And instead what he did is every day when he found really bad documents, he'd stuff them into a rubber girdle and he would take them out on his lunch break and he would go to a Kinko's, he'd make copies, and ultimately he amassed, amassed the largest trove of internal tobacco industry documents. His motives were as bad as they get. He wanted to cash in, he wanted money. His documents changed the history of smoking in America. They were as good as they get. Sue, David, thank you very much for being here. You're welcome. You're welcome. Those three pages from Donald Trump's tax returns are all we may ever see, unless another whistleblower like Merrill Williams intervenes or the political pressure becomes intolerable. That's what happened with Mitt Romney four years ago. The calls for disclosure from rivals in both parties forced his very reluctant hand on releasing his tax returns. Stuart Stevens was the chief strategist for that campaign. Well, um, you know, it became an issue in South Carolina. We probably should have released it before in the South Carolina primary, which was in January. So we did release it, I believe, during the Florida primary or just right at the end of the South Carolina primary, I would say. And it became an issue because his rivals were attacking him for it, his Republican rivals. Yeah, it was part of this whole attack of that Mitt Romney uh, is wealthy. And it, uh, it was fairly straightforward to release that year. 2010, and then a promise to release 2011 as soon as uh, as soon as it was prepared, which he did in September. At the end of the day, Stuart, as I recall it, Mitt Romney was criticized for the tax rate he was paying, but he paid tens of millions of dollars in taxes and gave away, I think, an average of around 14% of his income every year to charity. And how different does that look from what we know and don't know about Donald Trump's taxes? If Donald Trump is, did pay zero federal income tax a lot of these years, I think that's very troubling to people. And I think that he would have concluded that it's very troubling for people if that's the reason he's not releasing his taxes. You know, Mitt Romney, as you say, he paid around 14 percent the couple of years that he he released and, you know, fortune and, and charity as well. It's just it's a very different discussion if you're saying, OK, that 14 percent that you paid should have been higher which is a legitimate public debate about the role of the tax system in our society, than it is that you pay nothing. <laughs> so, Stuart, just to conclude here, um, as a longtime Republican strategist, I imagine you can relate to this feeling 
that many of us have covering this campaign, which is that the normal rules just don't seem to apply, especially to Donald Trump. And things that we think will matter end up not mattering. And taxes have mattered in the past for presidential candidates, and they arguably mattered to some degree for, for Mitt Romney. But when it comes to Trump voters and even those who lean toward voting for him, is it possible that the normal rules just don't apply and they're just going to look right past it? You know, I, when I hear that, I, I look at Donald Trump, he has a 35% favorable. He's the most unpopular national figure in politics. So I think all this stuff sticks to Trump. This is, at face value, a much easier race than running against an incumbent president by all the political science metrics. So I think the rules do apply. And that's what's blocking him from being able to beat a Democratic nominee who they would be the first to say is not the most perfect of candidates. So if the normal rules do apply, then just how bad is this moment for Donald Trump? And could it get even worse? We end with my colleague Alex Burns, who covers Trump for The Times. Oh, I think there's a lot of concern in and around the Trump campaign that there may be more documents to come, more leaks to come. This is a campaign that was already concerned that there were too many leaks coming out of Trump Tower. Uh, the notion that documents as valuable as these uh, may have come from somebody with some intimate connection to Donald Trump, I think, has people uh, all the more rattled. So how much juice can Hillary Clinton legitimately squeeze out of this one lemon? It seems like she could get a pretty healthy serving. I think she certainly can. I think what we saw on Monday in Ohio is that uh, she and Democrats in general have sort of figured out the architecture that they want to use around this tax issue, that it's not just a matter of you know, shame on you for not paying taxes, uh, that I think we saw Clinton more comprehensively than we've seen her do with a lot of the other attacks on Donald Trump, draw a straight line between his behavior on his taxes and a broken tax system and what she wants to do with the tax system, and then just a hard-edged character attack on uh, this man says he's smart, but he wasn't paying for troops and firehouses and uh, schools and all of that. We saw a campaign put out an ad that was one of the, uh, in my view at least, one of the cleverer ads that they've put out. You work hard. You pay your taxes. So why didn't Donald Trump pay his? He claims he's worth $10 billion, but a new report shows he may not have paid any federal taxes for almost 20 years. He didn't pay any federal income tax. That makes if me he's smart. Paid, if he thinks that makes him smart, what does he think of you? How stupid are the people of the country? It does, I think, hit home for a lot of voters uh, in a way that may be hard for people to understand who you know, know people who have elaborate tax returns or know people in finance who may take advantage of loopholes uh, that allow them to pay less than the average American. You know, for the average person, just hearing that somebody didn't pay taxes is, is really a sort of gut punch uh, revelation. So the I'm really smart and now you know exactly how smart I am argument from Donald Trump in the wake of his tax returns being released from 95, what other choice does he have to explain the situation he's in with his taxes? Well, remarkably, he could have done what he's done with a number of damaging stories previously in the campaign, which is just deny them, uh, even if they're true. And I think it's pretty striking in this case that he has never disputed the veracity of the documents or the conclusions and implications that our colleagues drew from them. 
what we saw him do on the stump in Colorado on Monday was to try to get beyond just that one liner about it makes me smart or oh, what a genius, uh, and try to paint this picture of the real estate industry as having been in crisis and him having been having triumphed over adversity in a way that few other men did. I think there are a lot of holes to poke in that story, um, but you at least heard a, a sort of broader uh, response than we heard from uh, Chris Christie and Rudy Giuliani on Sunday. I don't know that he has that many good options for dealing with this. If he's not going to release the rest of his tax returns and he's not going to dispute the accuracy of the story, uh, he's pretty backed into a corner. So you've teed up my next question, which is, what are the actual odds that he's going to wake up one of these mornings and say, you know what, it just I should just release a couple of these things, just get it out of the way, end all the discussion? We've not heard that that is an option that is under consideration by anyone at this point. And uh, why not? I it mean, doesn't mean that he, you know, Donald Trump is an impulsive candidate who makes his own decisions and doesn't take the advice of his senior advisors. So he could one morning wake up and decide, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, as he has done on a number of occasions in the campaign with different kind of dramatic gestures. Um, but pretty clearly, and his his own children have now said this on the record, uh, despite having insisted for months that this was about an IRS audit, they've pretty much come clean that it's because they don't want to release damaging information in his tax returns. So they've made a political assessment that whatever's in there is more damaging uh, than the appearance of concealing important information from the public. And look, I think we can only imagine what is in the full tax return, given what our colleagues are able to glean from just three pages from a tax return from 21 years ago. Uh, Alex, you're offering us a vision, maybe it's just like a teeny glimpse of a potentially more truthful Donald Trump who admits that, yeah, those are my taxes and there's nothing good in the taxes to release, so I'm not going to release them. I think what we're seeing is a Donald Trump who has his political interests running up against his long-term self-promotional interests, that this is a guy who has relied for 20 plus years on this image of himself as the ultimate comeback artist, the ultimate escape artist. And so politically, it would make a lot of sense for him to downplay the losses that he sustained in the 1990s and the tax benefits that he uh, gleaned from them. As a matter of his larger personal narrative, the notion that he was almost ruined and came back miraculously, and it proves that he's one of the greatest businessmen of our or any time, that is central to his identity. And so I think you're seeing him wrestle with that pretty publicly. I think one of the reasons why you've seen him behaving in such an erratic uh, and unpredictable way over the last few days is he doesn't, we've seen no indication that he knows how he wants to handle this issue himself, that he has reached sort of a place of uh, comfort with how he wants to talk about this. Well, I want to ask you about that. He's, we're so close to the finish, and I have to wonder if the power of the tax reporting the Times did in the last 72 hours is in some ways tied to the timing. Obviously, the, the reporting was a bombshell, but there's just like, there's just no room anymore. There's no time left. And I wonder if he realizes that and if that's the way you think about it. Well, I think there's a lot to that. I think that what we've seen over the last week, you know, for those of us who have lived inside this campaign for a year and a half, it's hard to imagine that there are people out there who haven't been watching the every move of these candidates. I think what we saw in that first debate was that actually there are a lot of people out there who haven't watched 10 consecutive minutes of Donald Trump, that he's making an impression on people in a way that he wasn't before. I think the tax story adds to that, that the, there is a whole community of voters out there who are vaguely aware 
uh, that the guy has you know some ups and downs in his business career. That yeah, maybe they know something about bankruptcy. But this is when impressions get hardened. Uh, this is when people make their final determinations about a candidate. And so to have this kind of information come out in the middle of a rough stretch for him between the first and second debate, when his poor performance in the first debate had already raised the bar so high for the second debate, it really adds just titanic pressure to this man going into that second debate to turn this whole thing around. And it's actually not even clear that he still has a window to do that. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. That's it for the run-up. After a big and proud weekend here at The Times, that reminds me of why this newspaper is so essential. I'll see you back here on Friday. Don't forget to subscribe to The Run-Up and to rate us on iTunes. This guy already has. I call it the family New York Times.